Romans chapter 4. And as you're turning to Romans 4, just a welcome to everyone. Good to see you. Good to have all of you, especially those of you who are newer. Thank you for joining us for worship this morning as uh, we really continue and ascend in our time of worship through the study of the Word of God, Romans chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere on a chair near you. Definitely grab one so you can follow along with our study, our verse-by-verse exposition of the book of Romans. Romans is in the New Testament after the book of Acts before 1 Corinthians. And we've been in the book for, oh, I'm not sure, maybe 18 months or so, just taking it one section at a time. As theologians and pastors have recognized over the centuries, this is probably the most important book of the Bible. And so we ought not rush it. Romans chapter 4, we come to the section this morning, our next section, verses 18 to 22. And this morning's message is an example, the title of the message, an example or a model of saving faith. A model of saving faith. Well, when God's word speaks of saving faith, it's never doing so out of trying to get people to jump through fiery religious hoops. Uh, The goal of God's word is not to get God's people to go through superficial spiritual motions. The goal is never to solicit us to pretend religion for a few hours on a Sunday morning or any time of life for that matter, to sort of paint the proverbial roses red and pretend Christ didn't come as a circus act, a religious magician trying to recruit theatrics and hypocrisy. The power of God through the Holy Spirit informed by the word of God based on the finished work of Christ when received by faith brings a living, saving faith, a genuine faith. And this is the goal of unpacking the word of God. 1 Timothy 1.5, when, when Paul, who he was writing to train Timothy as a young pastor, And by application and implication, pastors thereafter, he says, Timothy, I want you to hear me on something that's super important. As Timothy was young, he was in the city of Ephesus, which was a wild town back in the day, sort of like Las Vegas combined with, you know, Washington, D.C. And he says, as you're engaging in ministry, keep this in mind, that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, right? The heart, the control center, not pretending from a false heart. A good conscience, conscience being the smoke alarm of the soul, that I'm not violating it. I'm fighting to maintain a good conscience. And then this last phrase, he says, third, our goal is this in instruction, a sincere faith. That the goal of what we're trying to do, trying to do here and unpack the word of God every week and speak the word of God the other six days of the week to one another and pray as we want a sincere faith among whomever the Lord will call. A sincere faith, meaning there is insincere faith, which is not a saving faith. And that Greek word there that Paul uses for sincere, it has the idea of genuine. It means lacking pretense. Pretense. 
an absence of theatrics. That there is something living that is unmanufacturable by man's power, unfakeable, that the God who created us and the stars and the seas and Papua New Guinea and earthquakes and the sun puts in the heart, moved by his love, motivated by his mercy, and puts in the heart of the sinner, as we read in our scripture reading, Matthew 9, 1 through 13, where Jesus said, I came to call not the righteous, but sinners, and to do so to put a sincere faith in their hearts, not training them in religious theatrics. And so that's the goal of biblical instruction, and that's preeminently the goal in our next passage in Romans four, eighteen to 22, as Paul wants to hold before us and say, in effect, here, I, I want you to see what, uh, what saving faith looks like. Because there is, there is insincere faith. In, in the book of God, uh, John, the Gospel of John, you see Jesus is talking to believers, people who are false believers and those who are saved believers. And this is a, a great concern in the scripture. So it's the topic of our study. Follow along as I read then. I'm going to get a little momentum and start back in verse 13 of Romans 4. I'll read through verse 25. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. The inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word of God reads, For the promise to Abraham or to his seed that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith has been made empty and the promise has been abolished. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law... There's also no trespass. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be according to grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it's written, a father of many nations I've made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your seed be. Verse 19. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to do. Therefore, it was also counted to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was counted to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be counted as those who believe upon him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. It's the reading of the Word of God. Okay, so briefly what's happening here in Romans, in case you haven't been with us, the, the big idea, the big goal of Romans is to put before us in lots of clarity and detail the most important message in the universe, the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
gospel, the word gospel meaning good news. And this is good news because, as Romans laid out for us in verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3, the bad news, good news is always good, right? Because there's bad news as a backdrop, is that we really, really need Christ. The human race has fallen. One reason why uh, Paul traveled around the, the, the Mediterranean world in the first century and why God calls uh, brothers like Brian Twombly to go to the South Pacific and others is because of this verse we saw in Romans 3.23 that was sort of substantiated in verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3. We're all fallen. We're all fallen. And 1 John 1.8 says, anyone who says you're without sin, you're, you're a liar. You're just straight up a liar. We need the Lord. We need forgiveness. We need his substitutionary death, his victorious bodily resurrection. And so the great news of the gospel is God has provided that. Christ has come down. And the message, especially that this section of Romans is focusing on, is this theological phrase that's probably probably one of the most important words you'll ever learn, and that is justification, or justification by faith alone in Christ alone. The, the, The scriptures hinge and turned on verse 21 and said, okay, that's all the bad news. The good news now is that God, motivated by his incredible love, says there is justification by faith available in my son, Jesus Christ. Where justification means not, hey, I'm going to inspire you and motivate you by how awesome you can be. Quite the contrary. By faith in Jesus Christ, not works, God says, I will pronounce you instantaneously irreversibly, permanently, in right standing, righteous before me, clothing you in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that, so that as he is, you stand before God forever and ever on the basis of faith, not works, in the biblical Christ, counting our sins towards him in his death on the cross and reckoning or crediting his righteousness towards us. That is the greatest news you'll ever hear. You'll never hear anything greater than that. The message of justification by faith. So that is explained in detail in chapter 3. And then here in chapter 4, Paul seeks to illustrate justification by faith. So justification explained in chapter 3, justification illustrated in chapter 4. And in verses 1 through 8, Paul says, look, I, I want you to see how justification worked out in the life of two very significant individuals, King David and Abraham. Abraham, who is sort of the ethnic father through him and Sarah, came the nation, the Israelites. David, a very significant king in Israel's history. And the reason he's going to, to David and especially Abraham is because he, he, he's addressing, in particular, in the first century context, very religious Israelites who held Abraham very high and they were sort of confused about justification and thought, no, you know, we, we can get to heaven by our works. Through our moral exertion, we can like earn enough favor with God. And Paul's saying, no way. Nobody can. God's standard is too high. It is utter perfection. Deuteronomy 27, 26, which they knew. And so they esteemed Abraham. So he said, okay, well, let's take Abraham as an example and see how he was saved. And then in verses 9 through 12, Paul shows that he wasn't saved through religious rituals, in particular circumcision, which was a a very important religious ceremony for the Jews. Some of them 
thought, well, if, if we get this symbol, we're going to heaven. Paul says, no, it still has to be on the basis of faith. And then in verse 13 to 17, which we studied last week, Paul shows, and Abraham was not saved by trying, to, trying his hardest to adhere to the law or the Ten Commandments. The, the commandments came hundreds of years after Abraham. Now, and then in verse 18 here, end of verse 17 really, he turns a corner and says, all right, we've been talking about how salvation, justification, the only way to get to heaven is by faith. Faith meaning self-abandoning, faith not in myself, faith not in my works, but confidence only in Jesus Christ, his death for me, his resurrection, his righteousness. Let's talk about that faith now, he's saying. What does, what does a saving faith look like? That's what, the, that's what he's, look, he's looking at here in verses, end of verse 17 to verse 22. Okay, we've talked a lot about how justification is by faith. Well, now, by way of implication, he's saying, let's make sure we have saving faith. Let's make sure we know what it means to have a faith that you are saved by. And so we're, we're not going to, we don't want to leave this word faith in the esoteric realm. As many people do, well, I'm a person of faith, you're a person of faith, that's all good. Pat each other on the back, that's good and fine. No, we're not, we're not going to do that. This is what saving faith looks like. And he again holds forth Abraham to show he was saved, a sinner saved by grace. What does it mean to have saving faith? And so we, don't, we do not have a lot of time left, but we'll just uh, move sort of quickly out to skip over some things. But I want us to see some qualities of saving faith, in particular seven of them. We'll see seven qualities of saving faith faith from the life of Abraham. The text puts before us seven qualities or seven characteristics of saving faith from the life of Abraham. Number one is this, saving faith number one, it's the product of God's power. Saving faith number one is the product of God's power. This is at the end of verse 17. So as the passage kind of turns the corner, great, we've talked about you cannot get to heaven by your works, by warming a pew, by going through religious rituals, by any delusional presumption that you could obey enough commands of God to, to launch yourself into heaven. It can't happen. It's by faith in Christ. What does faith look like? Number one, faith is the product of God's power. We've got to start there. Look at the end of verse 17. He says, as it's written, the father of many nations, I've made you. Abraham being a spiritual father of those who believe in the sense of all who have saving faith, follow Abraham's example of putting faith in the Lord like he did. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God. And so the focus now in the text is on God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So the focus is on God, brings life into being, right? Gives life to the dead. He's, he's talking about, in particular, what he did with Abraham. We're going to see in just a second, he and Sarah are beyond, beyond the age of normal, typically, of childbearing, and God does a miracle. He's saying, he's saying as we're talking about faith here, I want you to know something. Before we talk about, you know, what I need to believe or how I need to, I want you to understand that if anybody has faith, this is a faith that has come from God. It is the product of God's power. This is not human created, human made, human centered. 
Any saving faith has been made by God and then given to you by God, the God who raises the dead. So the promise in context here to bring about the Israelite nation through Abraham didn't come through human ingenuity, human ideas, human power, human exertion, human moral finesse. Quite the contrary. Abraham and Sarah are like, we're too old. We'll look at that passage in a minute. It's a product of God's grace. Our faith begins not with us, nor with our power, nor with our strength, but the God of the universe. And as much as this passage is talking about Abraham's faith, Abraham is not the hero in this passage. He is an example of the sovereign grace God exercised upon him. God is the hero of Abraham's faith and anybody who has faith. God is the one who makes us able to have saving faith, enables us to put faith in Christ, just as it said in the verse we've often quoted in this series, Ephesians 2. It is by grace you have have been saved through faith, and this, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Faith is not of yourselves, faith is a gift of God, so that no one may boast. Abraham didn't have saving faith, because he was so heroic, though some of the religious Israelites were a little confused about that, but because God granted him the gift of faith. Saving faith is always a gift given by God who gives life to the dead and to the spiritual dead. That's why at the end of verse 9 in Ephesians 2, it says, so that you can't brag. If saving faith was about you or me or Abraham stirring ourselves up in our hearts enough to say, I'm finally going to believe in this message, then again, that would have to say, well, you can boast a little bit. But nobody can. Because saving faith begins with the power of God. It is the gift and the act of the sovereign grace of God opening the heart of the sinner through no power or ingenuity of our own. Purely the sovereign God moved by his grace who gives life to the dead and especially the spiritually dead, which everybody is until we put faith in Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2, 1. That's where we begin, number one. Number two, talking about saving faith. So moving out from there, and everything else is going to be a result of number one. Any other characteristics of saving faith are because saving faith is the power of God. So number two Second quality, saving faith, trusts God when circumstances seem humanly impossible. Saving faith trusts God when circumstances seem humanly impossible. This is found in verse 18, a little bit, and 19. Look at verse 18. So, so again, we started with the God who gives life, physical and spiritual, Consequent, verse 18, in hope against hope, he believed. Again, it's looking at Abraham's faith as an example. Hope against hope. It's saying, okay, Abraham's situation was against all human hope, but in hope, he believed. Everything seemed not to be in favor of hope, is what it's saying here. 
when it's looking at Abraham's circumstances, we'll get there in just a second. As Abraham looked at this, it was like, this is, there's no human way this could happen. Verse 19, and more in particular, look there. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. What's he talking about? Turn back to Genesis 17, real quick. Very first book in the Bible. Keep your pencil there in Romans 4. We're going to have to flip back to that pretty quick. But Genesis 17. What's the situation? Hope against hope. It's illustrated historically, inerrantly, in Genesis 17, verse 1. Now it happened. So this is Abraham has already been saved. We looked at this a couple, couple of weeks ago when we studied verses 9 to 12. Abraham's, uh, excuse me, Genesis 17.1. Now it happened that when Abram, this is before God changes his name, when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram, Yahweh, the, the, the Hebrew name for God, appeared to Abram and said to him, I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may confirm my covenant between me and you, and that I may multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God spoke with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you'll be the father of a multitude of nations, and no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make nations of you, and kings will go forth from you, and, I'll, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. Turn, uh, just look down at verse 15. Of Genesis 17, then God said to Abraham, as for you, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a son be born to a man of 100 years old, and will Sarah, who's 99 years old, bear a son? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his seed after him. Turn over to Genesis 18. Verse 1, then Yahweh appears to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent of the door of the heat of the day, down to verse 9 of Genesis 18. And he says, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. And he said, I'll surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent of the door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And Yahweh said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I indeed bear a son when I'm so old? Is anything too difficult for Yahweh, at the appointed time, I'll return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah denied it, however, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, nah, you laughed. Genesis 21, turn over there to verse 1. Genesis 21, verse 1, now Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said. And Yahweh did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time which God spoke and spoken to him. 
And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Isaac. Back to Romans 4. So there's the narrative there, the history of what happened, 2000-ish BC. They're too old. It was against hope, the situation. 100 years old, 90 for Sarah, typically beyond the years. The point here is that in hope, he hoped against hope. He understood this is humanly impossible. Saving faith trusts God when circumstances seem humanly impossible. This doesn't mean saving faith is unreasonable and it's just a shot in the dark in in the sense that there's no good reason to trust the Lord. No, Abraham knew God was the God who created the earth in six days. God has a faithful resume. But saving faith trusts God when circumstances seem humanly impossible. So, for example, the person who says, well, I've sinned too much. You know, God can't save someone like me or someone like them. Three strikes, I'm out. It's been 3,000 strikes for me. No, the severity of your sin is not greater than the mercy of God's grace. So you, you need to trust, the, trust God when circumstances seem humanly impossible. Well, God couldn't save someone like me. You know, uh, how could God change someone like me? You can't teach an old dog new tricks. You, did you not read? This is the God in Genesis 1.16 who created stars on the fourth day of his work week. And that was like just a part of his work day. You know, before he had coffee. What, what, are, what are you able to do on the fourth day and I'm able to do on the fourth day of my work week before I have coffee? God made stars. And so we circle back and our faith hinges not on what I think about myself, but on the God who overcomes circumstances. He who came from heaven, died on the cross, perfect obedience, and rose. Third, third quality of saving faith, it trusts in the word of God. Saving faith trusts and puts confidence in the Bible, in the word of God. Verse 18. Saving faith trusts in the word of God. So look back at Romans 4.18. So in hope against hope, he believed in that impossible situation, God brings about the nation, through which the Savior would come, Jesus so that he might become a father of many nations, according to which he had spoken, so shall your seed be. And that phrase there, according to that which had been smoken, spoken, is key. Not smoking, spoken. <laughs> spoken. So this is, this, is, this is what the scripture wants us to focus here on. What was spoken to Abraham by God. And then a Bible verse is quoted, namely Genesis 15, 5. This is the night that Abraham put faith in the Lord and was saved. Abraham's struggling. He's like, man, I I don't see, God, how you're going to bring a nation, this huge ethnic nation, through me. For the reasons which we already read. So God says on that night, Genesis 15, you can read it later. He says, look, go outside, 
And in 2000 BC, it's probably pretty dark by like, you know, a night when you're backpacking in Cascade Canyons or out in the Wind Rivers or something. Look at the stars, count them if you can. That's how numerous your descendants are going to be. And then verse 6, he believed the Lord and he credited him as righteousness. He saved, justified. Point being, God's word was enough for Abraham. He didn't say, well, do another trick for me. The word of God was sufficient in itself for saving faith. For us today, the words of the Bible. You don't need Bible and, scripture plus, God's word and some, something else. Bring a butterfly, God, a red one with pink spots that can talk, then I'll believe you. No, the words of God on its own is sufficient enough for us. And saving faith, one of its qualities, the characteristics, is it takes the word of God for itself. Saving faith says, you know what? I rose out of the, I, I rose out of the dirt a few decades ago. I'm dirt mixed with water. And then, I had, then these little opinions of mine and thoughts of mine come with me. God has existed for centuries and millennia and before all things. He never needed to learn anything because he always knew everything because he's always been infinite. The eternal God. So who am I to question his word? Who do I think I am? To place myself over an eternal, infinite being who had no beginning or end? Saving faith latches on the words of Scripture. And that's enough for it. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Reformed pastor in London, he said, saving faith holds on to the bare word of God. The bare word is enough in itself. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God is tested. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried or refined in a furnace seven times. Saving faith realizes, you know what? I don't need more than this sacred book that God has given to me. And to illustrate that, look briefly at Luke 16. Turn back to the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Luke 16. Profound illustration of this in Luke 16, verse 30. Start in verse 19, actually. So Jesus tells this story. There's a rich man. He had habitually dressed in purple, fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. But a poor man named Lazarus is laid at his gate, covered with sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming, licking the sores. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man was buried. And in Hades, he lifted his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of 
his finger in water and cool off my tongue from an agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he's being comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed. No one can come over, verse 27. Then he said, then I'm asking you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Verse 30, he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent or they'll believe, they'll be saved. Verse 31, here's the clincher. But he said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Moses and the prophets. Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, Isaiah's, the Isaiah's, the Hosea's, the Ezekiel's, the Daniel's, the Obadiah's. What's the point there? The point is, you're, don't think that you're going to get saved and finally be like, oh, okay, I'll believe in this God if people start launching out of the grave. That's not going to convince you. If the Bible itself isn't, it doesn't convince you, nothing will. Because the power is right here in the book. Words refined seven times. Saving faith lands on Scripture. Number four. Saving faith is a persevering faith. Saving faith is a persevering faith or an enduring faith, a keeping on going faith. Someone who says, well, I have saving faith, their faith will always be a persevering faith. Look at verse 20. Back to Romans 4. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, speaking of Abraham, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now, there's two statements here in this verse about how they kind of illustrate that saving faith is a persevering faith. But there's sort of a, wait a second. When I was studying this, I was like, wait a second. Something seems off here. Because you saw in verse 20, it says Abraham didn't waver. Do you see that? He didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. How, how did, are you sure about that? How did Abraham, if you know the history of his life, not waver? It, he struggled. He, he sinned like the rest of us. It almost seems like the Bible is trying to dress up this ugly reality of his life in nicer clothes and, and sort of sanitize a little bit of a dirty history of Abraham, but that's not what's happening. So what does this mean he didn't waver? Well, first, what it does not mean, it does not mean Abraham never sinned as a believer. It does not mean Abraham was perfect. It does not mean Abraham didn't struggle. He did. He certainly did. He's converted in in the passage we refer to, Genesis 15. But after that, you keep reading, it's like, whoa. That guy... You know, he believed the Lord. He, he was growing, but he had some falls at times. There were some valleys in his, in his life, some big ones, like you and me. So it can't mean that Abraham never sinned. 
Abraham is not used in his example of saving faith because his faith was flawless. There is no such thing from our perspective as a flawless faith. You read Genesis 12, 13, Genesis 20, verse 2. You see, oh, that, dude, that dude struggled. He didn't have a flawless faith. I like what Dr. MacArthur says here of this verse, quote, Struggling faith is not doubt, just as temptation to sin is not itself sin. The very fact that Abraham was trying to understand how God's promise could be fulfilled, indicating he was looking for a way of fulfillment, though he couldn't quite see a way. Sincere struggling with spiritual problems comes from strong godly faith, end quote. That's helpful. Because if you struggle like I do at times, our faith can take a lashing. Our lashing from the world, from Satan, sin within, sin without. But it said he didn't waver. He grew strong in faith. Look, in that moment, when Abraham was saved, he he said, you know what, I'm going to trust not in my feelings, but in the Lord's word. And as time went on, Abraham struggled, but he never abandoned the faith. He never defected from the Lord. Life continued, years progressed, it was a battle. But he didn't say, you know what, actually, I'm, I'm not going gonna, gonna to tap out. I'm not going to believe in the Lord anymore. God's just a sham. I'm no longer interested. If that happens, that it, there is not saving faith in the first place. Because saving faith is an enduring faith. You know the verse, 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Someone who used to be a believer was never a believer in the first place. Saving faith always endures because it's the product of God, right? Saving faith first comes from God, as we mentioned, number one. You know, saving faith, it's never going to be this thing, well, I got this from God, but I found it defective. There were parts that didn't work. I, I need to return it. Send it back to the shop, God. Give me a new faith. The faith you give me was, it didn't work. That, that'll never happen. It never has happened. It's made by God. Therefore, it's preserved by God. And like me, you might ask, okay, so, I mean, if saving faith is from God, it's not breakable, why do we at times so wrestle and struggle? Why does that happen? It's simple. That's easy. Simple answer. The God who gives the saving faith is perfect, but the people who receive it are not. We're given a faith that won't be shaken, though we will be shaken. We are imperfect people, and we're the housing of that faith. We're like faith's container. Imagine a guy who's given a 10-carat diamond, no flaws, no discoloration, an utterly perfect diamond, which is just in theory, it'd be priceless. And he takes this diamond, he brings it into his house, And he puts it on the mantle in a glass case. And then one day, fire sweeps through his neighborhood. 
just torches his house. Half of his structure is in ruins, melts the glass case. And as this guy's, as this guy's searching through the rubble of what once was his house, he finds the melted glass case and underneath some ash, he finds this 10-carat flawless diamond. And he says, oh, that's interesting. Huh, here's this diamond. It's still here. It's the diamond. It's flawless. It's still a diamond. It's still 10 carats. The housing in which the diamond was, was trashed, the diamond wasn't. And that's, that's the situation of kind of how saving faith works. You can get burned and struggle and have bumpy times. But the faith that God gives you will not be destroyed. That's part of the point of Peter's life. John chapter 21. That's, that's really much of the point of the book of Job. By the grace of God, saving faith is preserved. That's why it says Abraham grew strong. It's not his faith. It's God's. Saving faith is a persevering faith in which faith's housing will be kicked and shook and lashed, but the faith won't be destroyed. Number five. Number five, saving faith gives glory to God. It is God-centered. Saving faith gives glory to God. It is God-centered. Look at verse 20. In respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. To God. To give glory to God, just that kind of catch all phrase means a, a renewed heart by the grace of God in which the desires, as a pattern, seeks to uphold the honor of the God of the Bible over itself, to seek the will of the God of the Bible over itself, to give applause to the God of the Bible over oneself, to surrender to the wishes of the God of the Bible over oneself, and live in a glad subjection to the God of the Bible over oneself. You can't do that unless a miracle has happened to you, a greater miracle than physical resurrection. Whatever man's will is enslaved to, apart from the grace of God, it's self Saving faith has an entire shift of the soul to be God-centered. Number six, six characteristic faith. Saving faith trusts God's ability over man's. Saving faith trusts in God's ability over man's. Verse 21. Being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to do. This is describing, again, Abraham's faith, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to do. That, that there's one word in the original Greek that's translated fully assured. It means it has the idea of certainty. Persuaded. Persuaded over my own ability to reason or crank something out. 
Fully assured of what? That what God promised, I'm going to bring this nation, the gospel in seed form, God is so real, so true, so able, he's able to perform it. Faith trusts that God is able because faith believes that God is real. Very, very basic. Is God able? Yeah, he is. Even when all abilities of my own doing seem futile. Something interesting about uh, the, the Greek language into, the, into which the New Testament was given, just, it's like street Greek, common Greek. There aren't separate words, and this is related, there are not separate words for faith and believe. They're the same word. So? So there's a sense in which the phrase, he believed, means he faithed. A believer is a faither, believing, faithing. Faith, believe, and trust, they're synonymous. So what? As much as you hear just goofy talk of esoteric faith, I'm a person of faith, I have my own faith, there's no such thing as that. That's nothing. That's, that's not a thing. It's not real. Belief means belief upon and in something. In something that is real. And so faith being the same word in the Greek, I'm a faither or a believer. I'm faithing, believing in something. I believed in, faithed in. The Greek word there, faith, belief, means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. What was it? Complete trust and reliance in what Paul is pointing out in verse 21, that God is able. God is able to save me. God is able to bring this world to a very good end in which the risen Christ will come back, his feet will touch the earth, and he will fix all that's wrong. And all who repented and not had an esoteric faith, but faith in Christ, will be resurrected and reign with him forever and ever in a real, physical, upgraded, perfect, flawless world in which they'll never be able to die or sin again. Hallelujah. Faith in. In what? Again, circling back to verse 21, that what God promised, he is able. I mean, there's a lot of kind of out there promises in this book. Matthew 24, read Matthew 24, read Matthew 25. Revelation 20, Revelation 21, 22. But saving faith says he's able. And no more, no more questions about it. Finally, number seven, saving faith, characteristic of it. It's evidenced by obedience to God's word. Evidenced by obedience to God's word. Saving faith is shown as real, not made real, not earned as real, not, you know, received by obedience to God's word, but saving faith is evidenced, shown as real by obedience to God's word. Do not confuse those. Confusion of the two is heresy, heaven and hell. It's evidenced, not earned. By obedience. 
which would make sense because going back to number one, faith is given from God. It's a product of God. So anything that's given of God is going to have power. It's going to have transformational showing. It's not going to be inert. God gives you faith. It will never be inert or dormant. Can it struggle up and down? Of course. But there will never be a forever dormant about the faith that God gives. And since this passage is talking about Abraham, it behooves us to observe later, we don't have time to get into it, we talked about it in James, excuse me, in Romans 3, James 2, remember James 2, 14 to 24, that kind of tricky passage where James says, oh great, you say you believe in God, well demons believe in God too. Demons believe God is real. The, 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 the difference is, Demons don't have saving faith. They have not believed savingly upon Christ, shown by their lack of obedience and surrendered to God's word. You, on the other hand, though, if you are going to have a faith that is shown as real, given as a gift, it will, it will evidence in obedience to God's word. And then he brings Abraham to the table and says, let's, let's think about Abraham's life. His faith was shown real by his obedience to God. And probably, what, what event is he thinking about in Abraham's life? Genesis 22. That defining moment, right? Where it says, I mean, an unspeakably difficult situation where it says, there was a day when the Lord tested Abraham. And not a test like, you're not going to be able to find your keys for 10 minutes, or you're going to be eight minutes late to work. Some of you have been through some hard tests. Hard, hard tests. You know what that's like. And you came out the other end, and it's like, oh, I still believe in Christ. This faith must not have been mine, but given to me by God. I'm just the housing of it. I still believe on him. That's how it was for Abraham. And he offers up Isaac, Genesis 22. And that is shown and given to us given to Abraham, not to, not to mess with Abraham and say, oh, I'm going to, no, but to say a, a glorious and sometimes not always figure-outable God who's all wise to say, I want you to, I'm going to have you walk through this because it's very important. I, I don't need to see, I, I'm all-knowing, but I want you to see that your faith is indestructible. As... You continue to obey me, albeit imperfectly, and still believe upon me. And the difference between justification there, where Abraham was justified by his works, and James, he's not saying he earned heaven by his works, meaning it was shown as real by his works. So that's something of saving faith from the life of Abraham. And so verse 22, he closes. Therefore, it was also counted to him, verse 22, as righteousness. In other words, it, what? What was counted to him? His faith. His faith in the Lord credited him as righteousness. The faith that God gave, Abraham believes, and God brings down the gavel in heaven as it were. You are forever irreversibly Righteous in my sight, as if you had lived Jesus' life. What, a, what, what great news. And so in a message about faith, 
by way of application here, it behooves us to say, where am I at? We've talked a lot about saving faith. It does no good, though, if we don't exercise it. If we don't come to God with an empty hand and a heart that trusts in nothing but Jesus Christ and lay hold of his majesty, the Lord Jesus, the biblical Jesus, the real Jesus, who is God forever God, stepped out of heaven motivated by his love, lived this perfect life that you and I never could live so that we would have a righteousness credited to us. And then on that cross, on him, thundered down God's righteous wrath for the sins we committed and for the ways that we have all fallen short of God's holy and righteous and good commands. And then Christ rose from the dead, victorious, to prove he was who he said he was in the faith Saving faith is in him alone. Have you laid hold of Christ yet? Have you, have you come all the way to Christ? Have you gone from knowing about Christ to laying hold of him and saving faith? Have you, have you gone from, I've heard about saving faith, to exercising saving faith by the grace of God in this Jesus? Because you can hear about this all day long, but it's worthless if you still stand aloof and say, well, that's nice, I know about that, that's enough for me. No, no, friend. Saving faith surrenders by the grace of God and receives the most wonderful gift we could ever receive, right standing with God and the guarantee of eternal life. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace, your mercy, that as sinners, we could never morally work our way back up to you and into your graces. And you knowing that and being a God of love, dispatch your son to do the work for us in the perfect life lived, the horrific atoning death suffered, and the bodily resurrection demonstrated that by saving faith, by faith in Jesus alone, we might be saved. I, I just pray, Father, that all of us would come to our senses, those of us who haven't yet, and bow the knee to Jesus and see that there's no fighting God, there's no getting around this, there's no detouring this message and proceeding into eternity, even in this life, as if everything's okay. No, Father. Oh, would you work in hearts? To work in hearts. Would hearts respond to Jesus' invitation? Come to me. Come to me. And Father, those of us who have, by your grace, let us continue to have hope, even when it seems against hope. Let us, as the housing of faith is shaken, continue to see that you are refining, you're encouraging and you'll never let us fall out of the faith because it wasn't ours to begin with. By your grace alone we go. In Jesus' name, amen.